0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Lawyer Show. Uh, I'm Jeremy Rosenthal, your lawyer for The Lawyer Show. Uh, If you've not seen The Lawyer Show before, this is uh, a weekly podcast by lawyers, for lawyers, and those who have morbid curiosity about lawyers. There's a lot of people out there who feel like and think that. Lawyers are these ghoulish characters, and all that we do is prey on human misery. And people are in the darkest, worst part of their lives, and they they go to see a lawyer, and that lawyer just sort of preys on that or takes advantage of it, and 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 uh, and, and and seizes on that misery, and that the lawyer enjoys it. And the purpose behind the lawyer show is to show you that you guys don't know half of it. Uh, and the degree and the depth of our sociopathic uh, greed and and wanting to dominate the planet is far more than you ever anticipated. So this is for the the onlookers. And today we actually have we actually have something that's kind of what I would characterize as happy law. We have James Goorley, who is a lawyer with a law firm called Karstens and Calhoun. Cahoon. Calhoun. I. I, I was at that mental a lot of hurdle. Say that I was at that mental hurdle about to jump over, and I, I think it was, yeah. So I, anyway, uh, Carstens and Cahoon and James does intellectual property law, which one of the cool things about, and sincerely one of the cool things about uh, doing this podcast is, uh, it's my goal to bring in as many different people with as many different practices as I can, and it's hard to think of a practice that is as. Different as possible as criminal law, but intellectual property is that, and so uh, I'm going to let James talk today uh, to everybody about about what that means, about what that is, and so uh, he can talk to you. Of those of you who, while you're listening to the lawyer show, you should be watching us too, uh, and focusing your full attention, obviously. In the event that you're in your garage inventing things, that's fine too because James is your guy. So I, I've done, and I do a lot of talking, but I think people are going to be more interested in hearing from you, James. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and tell the planet about yourself?
1: Okay. Uh, well, I guess I'm a, I'm a partner at Carson's and Cahoon. Uh, an intellectual property boutique firm. So we have uh, about 14 lawyers who are all USPTO patent certified lawyers. So you have to take, you know, you and I took the Texas bar exam. So we're qualified to practice law in Texas. Patent lawyers have to take a separate bar exam called the patent bar exam uh, to be qualified to interact with the the US Patent and Trademark Office for patents. Uh, and every lawyer at my firm has done that. They've taken the separate test. And to, to sit for that exam you you have to have a uh uh, an undergraduate degree or you know higher degree in uh one of the hard sciences sciences so math engineering physics um medicine you know something like that that involves taking a lot of science classes um that just enables you to sit for the exam and then you pass the exam and then you can represent clients before the USPTO so every lawyer my firm does that um we so that's the the patents that we do we also do trademarks and copyrights so we're a full service intellectual property boutique firm.
0: And so um in other words one of the things is that you have to have one of those hard science or applied science backgrounds. Yep. I was a history major yep. and a journalism minor. They wouldn't let me sit for the patent bar. I don't think
1: not unless you were able to show them a college transcript that had a certain number of hours of hard sciences, even though you didn't actually get the degree. If you you know, it's unlikely that you would (laughs) have had that many, but some people do. And if you can show them evidence that you've had, you know, basically the same number of hours as a hard science major that then you can sit for it. But that's very rare.
0: You've got a degree in chemical engineering. That's right. Okay. yeah. Uh, and so obviously there there clearly wasn't enough drama in that for you. There wasn't enough bloodshed and tears and, and raw emotions, so you had to be a lawyer. Why'd you why'd you why'd you do this? Um so I was I started interviewing
1: for chemical engineering jobs my senior year of college. Um, most of those jobs involved working for an oil company. Um either managing a chemical refinery or a gas processing plant or something like that. And a lot of them were in, you know, small towns in Texas. And um, whenever I would go visit and and interview for these jobs, it just didn't seem like something I really wanted to do. I loved the science part of it. But going and working at a chemical factory, I guess I just, you know, I was a dumb kid who didn't really think through the ultimate goal of, okay, where am I going to be working as a chemical engineer? I just loved chemistry. I loved the science part of it. I didn't really have a, a good long-term plan. Um, I, I interviewed for a couple of jobs that I didn't get that I probably would have enjoyed. It would have been more like an R and D role at like uh, 3M and BASF. I interviewed, I got pretty far down the road. R and D, uh, research and development. Okay. Yeah. Um, and if I had gotten one of those jobs, I might've taken it and never been a lawyer. I don't know. Um, I think it was fortuitous that I didn't get them because I actually enjoy being a lawyer, but, um, but yeah, so it was kind of, I was like, I don't really want to work for an oil company working in, you know, in the field. And, um, and even since then, I've had friends in my chemical engineering class who have been in close proximity to explosions that have happened at, at refineries and things. And it's, it's actually kind of scary, but, um, so I just decided to basically take the last LSAT I could take before deciding to go to law school. Um, my mom's a lawyer, so she kind of talked to me about what options there were for, uh, scientists who go to law school and it sounded intriguing. So I just decided to do it and I think it was, it ended up working
0: out. So it's funny cause you characterized yourself as a dumb kid. When when little Jeremy right when I'm in the ninth grade tenth grade eleventh grade and I'm walking down the hallway to my shop class past all the kids in the chemical engineering lab, I'm not thinking that those are the dumb ones. <laughs> well, well, maybe dumb in
1: other ways. I don't know. Um, uh, yeah, I know how to. I'm good at taking tests and.
0: <laughs> but um, yeah. Okay, what is intellectual property? I guess it's
1: it's kind of like real property but it's property that you can't really touch. Um it's it's all about pre- protecting um creativity, things like ideas, uh brand names, creative works, uh, things like that.
0: Uh exactly like it sounds, intellectual yeah. and property things that you think of. So it, it so what you guys do uh a lot of it is that you are making sure that people can protect their ideas, right? Right. And that they can, in the good old-fashioned American way, profit from their ideas. Right. Yeah, and
1: you, I mean, it is possible to profit without having, you know, a patent on a product or a trademark. A lot of people do it. But when you have protection of your intellectual property, you can actually stop other people from infringing on your rights, which is really... How you can get a lot more value out of it. So, um, like for a patent, for example, if you have a patent on your pr- your little widget that you're selling, you, you got a patent. You know, you got it from the USPTO. You can stop. You can go to federal court and stop other people from making, using, selling, or importing your invention. And it's pretty powerful. Um, especially if if there's a lot of money involved. Um, you know, you can you can get substantial damages, and a lot of people do.
0: Uh, what exactly is a patent?
1: Like I said, it's a, it's a a document that you get out of the USPTO. You submit a patent application. You apply for a patent. It's examined by uh, a patent examiner in one of the four patent offices around the country. And then, um, if you're successful and you convince the examiner that you are entitled to a patent, they send you a, a patent, um, certificate. So, um, each patent will have a, a section at the end called the claims. And each claim is a single sentence that describes what you invented. Um, and it's not a sentence that any normal person would write, but it does have all of the elements of the, of the invention that you get through the patent office. So you've got that claim. And if you go look around the marketplace and you see somebody else who is selling a product that has element A, B, C,
0: and D of your claim, then you could potentially sue them for patent infringement. What's the difference between a patent and say a trademark?
1: Yeah, so a trademark is more like a brand name. It's more like a um, the name of a business, the name of the product, um, the name of the service. Um, it doesn't really have anything to do with like functionality or ornamentation of a product. Like that's more on the patent side. Um, a trademark is just a, a name or a slogan that identifies, it's a source identifier, an identification of the source of a, of a good or service. And then to get a, to register your trademark, again, it's kind of like a patent application. You file an application. Um, it's much simpler than a patent application, but um, you, you know, you identify your trademark, you identify the goods and services that you're offering under it. You identify the date that you first started using the trademark. And then um, a trademark examiner will examine that and go determine if you really are the the first one to start using it for those goods and services. And if you are, then they'll give you the trademark registration. Um, and trademarks are also a little bit different from patents in that if you want to, first of all, if you want to register it, you have to be using it. Uh, you don't have to be doing, uh, you don't have to be making it or using it or selling it. If you want to get a patent, you can just get a patent on an idea and never do anything with it. Trademarks are not that way. You have to actually be using them. And then if you want to keep them, you've got to prove to the USPTO every so often that you are continuing to use it. Otherwise it goes abandoned and um, and anybody else can pick it up and go from there. There's actually kind of like a, a cottage industry of people who go pick up abandoned trademarks and start Start using them themselves. It's kind of a kind of a weird little sub industry that that has cropped up over the over recent years.
0: And what's the difference between a and I'm showing my, I'm just showing why a, a reason number four hundred and eighty nine why I'm <laughs> not a why I'm not an IP lawyer. What's a what's a copyright? And okay. how does that differ? Yeah, copyright uh, protects a
1: creative work. It doesn't protect the idea behind the work. It just protects the work itself. So you write a book. That's a literary work. You can register that with the copyright office. And then you've got your uh, copyright registration certificate. these I mean, it's quite a bit easier to get a copyright registration. Um, there are a few things that are um, examined maybe a little more closely, like uh, if you want to register a copyright for, like, a, a piece of jewelry, Um sometimes those applications will get reviewed a little bit more closely, but if you write a book or, uh, you know, something of any length of, you know, a, a, maybe a longer poem or a song, I mean, that's pretty much going to go through without a problem. Um, you know, videos are copyrightable, pretty much anything creative, um, software code, um, you know, things like that. Anything that you've kind of created, like a work of art, a sculpture, a literary work, a, a podcast, a podcast. Yeah. This is, uh,
0: uh, although they would see this and see how that this is just not particularly creative. <laughs> no. Right? No, this is... Uh, yeah, And the thing about copyrights is
1: they're, they're actually... Uh, you get copyright protection, such as, as it is, from the date the work is created. Um, now, you can't go sue anybody for copyright infringement until you register it, but mm-hmm. the copyright itself is protected as soon as you create the work.
0: Okay. And you guys do all three? Yeah. Okay. Um, talk about what patent prosecution is, because that's a that's a word that uh, I I think in my line of work obviously has a far different mm-hmm. meaning than in your line of work. What's a patent prosecution?
1: Yeah, prosecution. That that definitely is a, a different term of art in in my world. Um, usually, if you're prosecuting something, you're in court. You know, whether you're prosecuting a case, ruining or, their lives. Yeah. <laughs> No, actually,
0: we need we do need prosecutors, and we need prosecutors to be very aggressive, particularly when they're prosecuting people with a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. This is The Lawyer Show. Oh, by the way, this is The Lawyer Show. You're watching us. We are on between uh, 12 and 1. Uh, every Thursday, uh, we are on J.P. Kathy, and the Crew Network. You can see J.P. Cathy and the Crew between 7.30 and 9, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Uh, again, this is The Lawyer Show. My guest today, James Gorley, copyright attorney. Uh, with Karstens and Cahoon. And so uh, w- picking up just where we left off, a copyright, uh, or excuse me, patent prosecution.
1: Yeah, patent prosecution. So patent prosecution is what happens when you have an idea, you um, file a patent application at the USPTO, the US Patent and Trademark Office, and the process of getting that application through the USPTO procedures and trying to get a patent to come out the other end, that's called patent prosecution. So almost, you know, the process involves preparing the application, which is is usually fairly time consuming. You submit it to the USPTO. It'll, unless you pay them a whole bunch more money, it'll probably uh, sit there on a patent examiner's desk for about a year, year and a half before it actually bubbles up to the top of the stack. The patent examiner will look at it usually reject it they'll that's what they're paid to do they're paid to find problems and you know come up with reasons why you don't deserve a patent um they'll send you a rejection usually sometimes they'll allow it but usually it's a rejection and then that starts a back and forth process that we call patent prosecution where you respond to the examiner's rejection the examiner looks at your response maybe he he or she's convinced maybe they aren't um and then they either issue another rejection, which you can then respond to. You can keep this process going as long as you have money. Um, I mean, I, I was involved in a, uh, I was actually an expert witness in a case that involved a, like a dispute over uh, uh, legal fees involved in patent prosecution. Um, and they had gone back and forth in one case with the examiner, I think 15 or 16 times. So they had, they had spent a lot of money um, going back and forth that's the, with the examiner. That's,
0: that's what you call a college try right there. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so they, they ultimately ended up getting a patent too. Um, but, but usually in my experience, if, if you haven't gotten a patent out of the examiner in maybe four or five tries, you probably need to think about maybe calling it quits and, and, mm-hmm. and crying uncle and, and abandoning it. But, um, But yeah, usually one to four kind of tries at the examiner is usually what it takes.
0: So this is where the rubber meets the road, right, With, with intellectual property law, because this is the confluence, right, of your legal training with rules and requirements and regulations that you know the patent office is looking at with the science. Because I'm guessing that when the patent office is rejecting things, right, I'm guessing that they can do it for either. They can do it or or a combination. Yep. And so it, it can get very muddy and very technical. And that's why a guy with a history major mm-hmm. um, and a journalism minor—that's why probably I'm not the best guy to do stuff like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So there, there are, there are definitely procedural rejections and there are also substantive rejections. And you got, I mean, that's why you got to have a lawyer that knows both uh, the science side and the procedure side, because there are requirements for basically like how detailed you have to describe your invention. Um, If you don't provide provide enough detail, it can be kind of rejected on that grounds. If you use um, words that are not exactly clear that can be interpreted different ways that they call it. It's indefinite. You know, nobody would understand if they're looking at your patent application, what you actually mean. Um, those are, those are kind of like procedural, I would say. I mean, there is some science tied into that too, mm-hmm. but, um, but there, there are certain requirements in that respect, but then there's also when you've one of the things the examiner is looking at is um, he'll look at the invention and um, go looking for what we call prior art, which is everything that was published before you filed your, your patent application. So most of that is there's a, a giant uh, database of published patent applications and patents that, I mean, it's... Even ones that have failed? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So every patent application is published after about 18 months after its filing date. Um, and then it just becomes a matter of public record, regardless of whether you get a patent or not. Um, and it, that's, that's true with almost every patent office in the world. So sometimes the, the examiner will go find a European patent application that was published or a Chinese patent application that was published and cited as prior art. And then, so once the examiner finds some prior art, they think is relevant. They compare it to what you claim you invented. And if they think that your invention is not new or that it's just obvious in view of the prior art, they'll reject it on that basis. And that, Again, obviously involves some legal considerations, but it's also very technical. You know, you have to understand uh, how this prior art invention worked, how it's different. Um, you know, some different considerations that a person of ordinary skill in that art would would use. I mean, there, you know, it's it's very intertwined
0: the legal side and the and the technical side. Talk about some of your clients and how they come to you specifically. Uh, do you get folks who are tinkerers in their garage? Do you get corporations? Uh, talk about how folks come to you, and I know you can't probably talk about some of the specifics I- items that you see, but yeah. but talk about the range maybe of uh, of, of of Gidgets, Gadgets, <laughs> whatever, right? Rocket ships that, that people come and bring to you.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've represented uh, everyone from individuals all the way up to, you know, some of the largest companies in the in the world so um yeah i think if you do search just on the uspto website of issued patents that have my name and my law firm name on it you probably come up with something like maybe 400 450 patents that's over 15 years so i've done a lot of mm-hmm. you know a lot of work with a lot of different types of companies um and you know, sometimes they start off as like a little startup with two people, and now you know they're twenty employees, twenty-five employees. You know, I've I've seen that several times. Um, sometimes it's a mid-sized company that just has a, a very small R and D group um, that's coming up with you know maybe an idea or two a year. Research but, and development. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And and again, I I get garage tinkers as well that. You know, think they've come up with something in their in their garage, and sometimes they have, and sometimes they haven't. So, um, yeah, it's just a very a very wide range. How how unique does something need to be to get a patent? Well, the two main requirements that I kind of talked about before, you got to prove it's new. So, if an examiner goes out and finds something identical in the prior art, he's going to say it's it's not new. Um, that one, if they find a, a a prior art reference that that they say uh, you know renders your invention as lacking novelty that's sometimes difficult to overcome the one we usually end up fighting about is whether it's obvious and um what that involves is basically you you have a widget it's got element a b c and d and the examiner goes out and does a, a prior art search and finds one document that discloses elements a and b Finds another document that discloses elements C and D and says, look, it would be obvious to a person of ordinary skill in the art to combine these two because you're just going to get predictable results. You're not really seeing anything you know, new and spectacular out of just a, a combination of these elements. And that's, that's the one we end up arguing with them about uh, the most.
0: That's obvious.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. I know a lot of people who are masters of the obvious and I guess there's a job for you at the USPTO. Um, okay. Uh, we had a fun talk, uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, about a topic that for, I'm probably a lot more fixated on it than, than I, I think it's worth. Thermal dynamics and uh talk about thermal dynamics and talk about just i'll I'll let you go yeah (laughs) no i
1: guess the uh a lot of patent attorneys i'd say most or all have the experience after you've been doing this for a certain number of years or of people potential clients i guess i would call them uh walking into your office and telling you that they have invented a device that actually gets more energy out than you put into it.
0: Which is impossible.
1: It's a a violation of the laws of thermodynamics. These are the laws of the universe, basically. Um, Conservation of momentum, conservation of energy, that kind of thing. Um, And, you know, if you... It's it's just kind of a tricky conversation because they really feel like they've they've got something here that's gonna you know revolutionize the world and end world hunger and everything. from their
0: garage in Richardson. Yeah,
1: and and the 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 main problem with all of them is it's usually a measurement problem. So you're not really measuring the energy coming in and the energy going out in in a, in the right way. And I mean, it's been a range. I mean, I've I've had. Uh, like a combustion type engine. And I'm not giving away anything secret sure. there. There's all this kind of stuff on the internet. If you want to go look on YouTube and there's, there've been like, you know, like transformer coils, um, things involving lasers that are, you know, claiming to get more energy out than they put in. And, and, you know, each time it's just kind of a gentle, you know, <laughs> you may have something, you may have a, a, a transformer coil that is highly efficient that you're getting, you know, maybe 90% efficiency. And if you've got a transformer coil is getting that, that's a great, I mean, that's <laughs> that's actually a great invention, but you're probably not getting more energy out there. You're not putting. getting 105%. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, those are, I mean, it's, it's happened a handful of times over my career. And it's just, uh, and the, the patent office actually has special rules that if you if you want to file a patent application on something that violates the laws of
0: thermodynamics, you actually have to bring the device. Well, show, is, is that so they can laugh at it? I mean, well, well, if, if it violates the laws <laughs> of thermodynamics, I mean, isn't it, wouldn't that fit in the obviously, well, I guess that's different than something that's another person can obviously replicate or, or we can obviously make this. That's, this one is different. It obviously won't work.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, they, they just want to see it in person before they're going to entertain the idea.
0: Put you in the Smithsonian, or yeah, <laughs> or 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 something like that. And so, uh, so if you take like in, in the example that I think I was talking to you about the other day, it's those little balls that you you drop one ball, and then all the energy transfers, and there's two or three balls, and then the other one goes there. There's yeah. always going to be a transfer. This is high level science for me, as as high as anybody's ever going to get out of me. But there's always going to be you're you're going to lose energy in that transfer. Right. Sure. Even the transfer,
1: there's going to be friction where the string is attached. I mean, there's all kinds of energy losses in there. They may be tiny and it may they may be um, it may be a while before they actually manifest themselves and you can notice it. But they're absolutely there. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, you're watching J.P. Kathy, and the crew network. Uh, you can see J.P. Cathy and the crew between seven thirty and nine Monday, Wednesday and Friday. You're watching The Lawyer Show. Uh, We are on every uh, Thursday between 12 and 1 on Facebook Live. My guest today is uh, intellectual property lawyer James Gourley from the law firm of Karstens and Cahoon. And we are talking today again about intellectual property. Talk a little bit about, uh, I want to stay on patents and I want to stay on inventions. Before we talk about litigation and defending them, which you do as well, Mm -hmm. right? Yep. Let's talk a little bit more about patents and, and how patents work. How long is a patent good for? So a
1: utility patent um, is good for 20 years from the filing date, which I know is a little weird because you file it and it may not issue for a few years, but the, it's calculated from your filing date on utility application.
0: And what's what's a utility okay, application? Okay, so there, yeah, there are two different types Sorry. of patents. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I should have said this earlier. There's you, a. I'm, I'm a lawyer too. So every every once in a while, I'm a lawyer too. So yeah,
1: um, so there are two types of patents. Uh, well, there are actually three, but um, the two main ones are a utility application and a design application. A utility application is for functional aspects of things like. Devices, methods, compositions of matter, things like that, that do something different. Um, a design patent is for products, articles of manufacture, is there, <laughs> which, are, uh, which have uh, ornamental design characteristics, which are different from the prior art. So the way something looks, um, which there's a little bit of overlap between that and copyright. Uh, but a design patent is um, good from 15 years from the issue date. So you get 15 years from the issue date on a design patent, 20 years from the filing date on utility patent. And then if there's, if the patent office is responsible for an inordinate amount of delay in the prosecution process, um, sometimes you'll get something called patent term adjustment, which is time added on to the end because the, the patent office has, has delayed the application.
0: And that's time. Can you renew a patent?
1: You have to renew a patent if you want to keep it alive. And, um, like every you know five years or so you have to pay a, a fee to the uspto to to keep it alive
0: when does it ultimately don't things become i don't know if public domain yeah, is that's the, the, the proper right. word uh, ultimately do things become public public domain
1: yeah as soon like if you don't pay one of the maintenance fees it becomes public domain because it just goes goes into the public domain and then at the, if you pay them all then at the end of the term then it goes in the public domain Okay. And if you file an application and it gets published, and you abandon it before it becomes a patent, that's also in the public domain.
0: So, but you're you're capped at twenty years on the utility. Yep. Fifteen from the date of acceptance on the design. Design. Okay. So if I invent, so so if I invent a just a awesome bread slicer, mm-hmm. right? I can profit off that. I have the exclusive ability to profit off that or license it out, right? Yeah. Uh, so in other words, other people can pay me to to do it. Sure, yeah, if you're okay with that. Um, and I, I and after 20 years, Humpty Dumpty sort of falls off the wall, and the rest of the planet can can do it.
1: Yeah, I guess the hope is during that time you've been innovating and maybe coming up with an even better bread slicer between you know over those 20 years. I can't so, just. Yeah. But what if I just want to be done and just? <laughs> well, maybe you've made enough to retire in those 20
0: years. <laughs> maybe maybe so. Maybe so. Um. Okay, so, so moving on to patent litigation, yeah. right? So let's talk about what happens when somebody violates a patent. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so if you
1: got a patent. Um, you look over the marketplace and you see, you think you've identified somebody who is practicing each and every element of your claimed invention. Like I said, you've got element A, B, C, and D. And you find a, your widget out there on the marketplace that has element A, B, C, and D and you determine do i want to file a lawsuit against these these guys do do i want to maybe send them a letter um first there there's all kinds of considerations um but yeah the you have to decide do i do i want to go try to enforce my patent in court ultimately um and that involves um filing a lawsuit you know saying hey judge i've got a, i've got this patent this is what i claim this is a device that's infringing um and i'd like my damages uh, or my injunction and that's that gets the whole process started then on the other side you know you get a you're the you're the defendant you're accused of patent infringement um you know at that point you take a look at the patent and say oh oh no i'm i'm infringing i better pay these guys or um the patent may be invalid you know you may look at the patent and say well ah, I don't think the examiner did a great job. I think there may be prior art that the examiner didn't find that I can show to the judge and say, look, judge, you know, the examiner didn't didn't see this other prior art. Um, And we think that the invention is is lacks novelty or is obvious over this other prior art that the that the examiner didn't consider. So. Just the 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 fact that you get a patent out of the patent office is not the end of the story. You can actually go to court and invalidate a patent if you're on the defense side, if you can find better prior
0: art than the examiner considered. That that's a really I I, I wasn't aware. Well, I'm not aware of a fraction of, of 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 this stuff. But I but really, if you the way you say that is it, it it's it's pretty fascinating if you think about it. Because it puts, doesn't it put then, you have a client who comes into your office and let's say it was a really difficult patent prosecution, right? And you, you feel you feel like, oh, we got the patent, you know? Yeah. Now I'm worried about losing it if I get too aggressive in its own enforcement. So it actually gives you incentive, it gives you disincentive to go and, and defend your patent if you see somebody who's stepping on your toes.
1: Yeah. Um. That's, uh, that's always a risk if you're on the plaintiff side um, and it's, it's actually a pretty big risk. I think about half of all asserted patents are invalidated ultimately either in court or at the patent office. Yeah, there's a whole other, mm-hmm. by the way, a whole other procedure you can use if you're on the defense side. Um, if you get sued for patent infringement or even accused of patent infringement, you can go to the USPTO and file uh, for an inter partes review um and have the patent office basically take another look at this thing in view of whatever prior art you think you found um so you can lose that way too and uh back when back when the uh that they're called IPRs interpartis review um, and or and back when that was first started back in like i think it was like 2013 or 2014 something like 85 to 90% of patents that were involved in those reviews were invalidated, at least some of the claims were invalidated. It's come back down now to where it's again, closer to like 50 60%, something like that. Um, but I think I think just a lot of the low hanging fruit was mm-hmm. kind of invalidated early on, but now it's kind of down, you know, something reasonable. But um, yeah, there's a, there are a lot of ways to lose if you're a plaintiff, for sure
0: yeah and 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 if you're defending somebody who's come to you because they've gotten sued for copyright or not copyright but patent infringement Mm -hmm. that's why you hire a guy like james gorley to go and say well let me tell you we could fight this on its merits and we can fight this on whether or not this is similar but i got a better way to go and cut their achilles heel out from under him. check this out we're going to go and validate their patent yeah yeah and that's um
1: the last time i was on the defense side um I was able to find killer prior art in about 30 minutes because I knew as soon as I looked at the patent claim, it was about, um, the patent claim was only about maybe eight or nine words. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew right when I looked at it, I, I said, there's, there's got to be killer prior art out there on this. And I went and I found it immediately. Um, and then subsequently found a whole lot more, even better prior art
0: than the, the, than what I found in 30 minutes. But... Um, how did so? How did the patent office miss it in the first place? And I guess that's I guess this is this is incentive for whatever fellow is working at the patent office to make sure he gets it right. This can't be good to have your patents invalidated down the road.
1: Well, I I don't really know how much accountability there is at the patent office for examiners that uh, allow a patent that's ultimately later invalidated. I just don't know that that really factors into their reviews. But I mean, that's what a lot of people don't understand about the 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 patent application or prosecution process is that it's a very, um, you know, this is being looked at by a human, uh, a human being. It's not, it's not just some sort of like totally objective review. Like this is a, Mm -hmm. this is a human who has their own competencies, their own uh, biases, even um, either in favor of or against patents. Um, And, there it's just you never know how another human being is going to look at this and look at the prior art and and judge it and there there are several different companies out there that actually will give you the statistics on your examiner you 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 tell them really um yeah you tell them who your examiner is and they'll tell you okay this examiner allows 85 percent of the cases that comes across their desk or this this examiner allows 10 percent of the cases that come across their desk um there, you know, you can appeal rejections to a, uh, the patent trial and appeal board. Um, and you know, this, they'll tell you this examiner, you know, loses 45% of the time on appeal. So you can get all these metrics on the examiners and it's, it's it's a wide range. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, I've prosecuted, uh, patents in front of examiners that some examiners only allow like four cases a year and they look at probably, I don't know, 50 or 60, maybe more, um, but others allow, like I said, the, the, in this, this case that I was on the defense side, the particular examiner, I looked up their statistics and, 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 he allows 85% of the cases that come across his desk. So would that be, is that admissible? Uh, this examiner analytics is, is pretty new only in the last few years have the, the, the patent office has kind of opened up their, um, data set through an API, uh, to private companies. So it's, it's kind of a newer thing. And I, I don't know if anybody has tried to introduce that as evidence or not. I thought about doing it in this case. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, at this first place I went, I'm like, yeah, you know? yeah, I, I thought about it. Um, I mean, it would definitely involve, you know, paying an expert some money with uh, maybe a, a chance that it might be excluded as irrelevant or, you know, hearsay mm-hmm. or something like that. But
0: um, but I definitely thought about doing it in this case. Or you have a bench trial, right? And then you file a pretrial motion of some sort, where where it's, "Hey judge, look at this. Uh, I can't consider that. Great, but now you know." Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So yes, trial advocacy. Um, yeah. Yeah. That that's pretty that's pretty fascinating. So, do you ever come across the same examiners uh, time and again? I mean, how many of them are there? Um, about. Man, I don't even know. Um, they're divided up by
1: uh, technology centers and art units, so you, you do have examiners that are sort of like, almost like subject matter experts in certain areas of prior art, like, you know, for example, like a fishing lure. Like, you've probably got you know a, a handful of examiners that examine all of the fishing-related mm-hmm. applications that come across their desk, so they so got a pretty good idea of what's, you know, what's out there. That's kind of how it's divided up. But yeah, no. I I mean, especially I've represented companies that do a lot of work in one particular field, and I have come come across the same examiner same, same over, over and over. And I knew Ugh. whenever it was assigned, like I said, the guy that the guy that allows four cases a year. I mean, whenever I get an application assigned to him, I got to counsel the client. Be like, look, this is probably not going to be allowed unless we are able to win on appeal. And the thing about that particular guy is he's actually really good, really smart, and he writes really detailed, well-written rejections that actually
0: do well on appeal. So he, he's tough. I mean,
1: he's tough to get cases through.
0: Yeah, it, it, and a parallel in criminal law too is uh, search warrants, because what happens is a lot of times, or, or arrest warrants, what happens a lot of times is any judge or magistrate can issue or sign a search warrant, right? And so what police get in the habit of doing is they just go to their old faithful judges that that they know is just going to kind of rubber stamp it. Well, if they do that, they risk getting it set aside down the road because they didn't go to the hard one, right? So uh, what they always, when I was a prosecutor, they always encouraged us, if we were getting search warrants, they would always say uh, in, in continuing education classes and all this stuff, they would encourage and encourage police officers go to go to a difficult judge because he will or she will check your math and they'll 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 tell you how to they'll they'll tell you to fix things, and then you fix them and then the thing is fine. If you go to the rubber stamp, it's not going to hold up down the road. Having said that, that's probably a really crappy conversation to have to have with the client to say, uh remember when we were talking about this and I told you there's one guy who we really don't (laughs) want. Uh, I just got a letter from him. Yeah. He's, he's our guy on the case. So yeah, I imagine that, that, that kind of, that, that can, that can be tough too. Yeah. Yeah. The other
1: thing, um, the other thing about it though too, is, um, even if you're assigned to an easy examiner, you still have an incentive to, um, make the examination as quality as possible to make sure that the patent that comes out the other end is valid. Mm-hmm. And in that case that, that I was telling you about, that I was on the defense side, where I identified um, identified killer prior art immediately, I know for a fact that the patent owner could have done that too. And the reason I know that is that... Um, they had Google. Well, in the, in, <laughs> in the, course, of, in the course of my investigation, um, I found that they had copied and pasted a whole bunch of text from a prior art patent that was directly on point into their own application. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but a lot of people do it. But the flip side is you also have a duty to disclose to the examiner any relevant prior art that you know about. Mm -hmm. Um, and if you don't do that, you're guilty of something called inequitable conduct because
0: that doesn't sound like fun.
1: (laughs) Uh, well, yeah, it's not if you're the patent owner, that's for sure. It's fun if you're on the defense side like I was. But um, so, yeah, if, if you if you prove an equitable conduct in court, even if it's just as to one claim of the patent, the, the entire patent can be invalidated because the, the, the patent prosecution proc- process is what we lawyers call ex parte. It's just It's just you and the examiner. So you are under a duty to give the examiner all the information they need um, that you're aware of to examine the application fairly and make sure what what comes out the other end is is um, is as high quality as possible. So um, I know in that case that that the patent owner knew of relevant prior art that they did not disclose to the examiner because all of that's public record. You can go look at the file history um, and uh, see what they disclosed to the examiner and I mean, it was just they, they copied and pasted from absolutely killer prior art from a from a big company in that industry that is very well known, um, has a giant patent portfolio in that industry. So um, it, it was just a matter of time.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, you're watching uh, JP, Kathy and the Crew Network. This is the lawyer show we are on between 12 and 1, Monday, Wednesday and Friday. Uh, no. I'm wrong. We're on from 12 to 1 on Thursdays. Uh, we're we're low blood sugar. We had a big morning and, and it's hard being a lawyer Yeah, sometimes. Uh, J.P. Cathy and the crew, you can watch them between 7.30 and 9.00 Monday, Wednesday, Friday. You can watch the lawyer show between 12 and 1.00 every Thursday. Uh, I'm Jeremy Rosenthal and this is James Gourley, uh, intellectual property lawyer. Let's talk about what are some hot button issues these days with IP. Oh man. Um, I guess the, the,
1: one of the hottest issues that's still, I mean, it still remains is um, it's in, it's been this way for probably, I don't know, five or six years is something called patent eligibility. Um, whether you're claiming eligible subject matter. So for example, you can't claim that you invented a natural phenomenon people uh, try that? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I actually, um, the, the case I was, I was talking about that I was on the defense side. That's one of the arguments that I tried. It wasn't, it wasn't great, but, um, they basically claimed they invented highly enriched, uh, purified CBD. So like from hemp or cannabis or whatever, uh, you know, they sued my client for selling, a, you know, a, a high CBD tincture. Um, and basically, if you look at the patent claim, that's all that's there is a liquid with greater than 95% CBD. Um, that's what they claim they invented, which they didn't. But, um, but one of the arguments that I tried early on in the case, because it just kind of way beyond the scope of this, but it's just mm-hmm. procedurally it was appropriate to do, is um, argue that they were claiming unpatentable subject matter. Like it's not, it's not patentable because you're claiming a natural, just a natural product. Um, that ultimately wasn't successful uh, because the judge thought, well, sure, CBD exists in nature, but it's not um, it's not present in the plant at greater than ninety five percent. So they that gets them out of the natural phenomenon. Now there's I, a man made. Yeah, well, th- there's okay. I mean, I disagree with that because there's actually a Supreme Court case uh, that says essentially that isolated DNA fragments are not patentable subject matter. So you take a DNA fragment, you isolate a little strand of it, mm-hmm. try and patent it. It's not patentable subject matter. The Supreme Court said that. And I my argument was basically this is analogous. You're just taking mm-hmm. a chemical out of the plant and saying, "Hey, this is
0: this is what I have, a highly enriched chemical." And um, so they weren't trying to protect or copyright or the, the subject matter was was it about the process or was it about the product? The product. The product. Yeah. Can you? Can you? Can you? Uh, is there intellectual property protection for a process? Yeah,
1: you can get uh, method claims. That's what we call them, method claims. Okay. Um, but they didn't do that view. in this case. No, not in this case. Okay. Yeah. No, it was just the a product—a a liquid formulation with greater than ninety-five
0: percent CBD. Basically, is what it is. So. Um, and this was absolutely invented in somebody's garage. <laughs> no we think no no the cbd the the enriching of the
1: yeah the- um there there's just a ton of prior art on enriching cbd there's a there's a big company called gw pharma that has a uh, fda approved medication that's basically liquid highly enriched cbd that preexisted this for for quite a number of years but um and and it's their patent portfolio that just anticipates everything that these, these guys thought they invented, but, um, but yeah, but it's, it's the, this patentable subject matter is actually more of a a hot button issue in the, in the software industry. Um, Because a lot of people back in like early 2000s started claiming ideas implemented on a computer. Um, And the, the Supreme court started shooting them down, kind of starting in, I think, mid-2000s. And it's just been really tough to get software-related inventions through the Patent Office once the Supreme Court kind of started shooting them down that, you know, look, just implementing this idea on a computer is not patentable subject matter. It's a little more complex than that, but generally that's... um, But there's still just this ongoing battle between uh, the Federal Circuit and the Supreme Court regarding, you know, what is patentable subject matter. So
0: um, I don't know. That's one of the hot-button issues. And I would think that that would get hotter, as as you will, the more and more technology advances, the more and more, you know, we, we've we got all these devices, right, mm-hmm. um, and all of them have – the more of them that there are and the more different types of things you uh, you have – I think the more and more, am I right, that you see these this issue crop up?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and another uh, sort of uh, semi-related hot button issue that's definitely heating up lately is the idea of a uh, like AI inventions. Um, whether it's you know artificial intelligence can now actually like compose songs, <clears throat> um, who's the author? Uh, an AI related invention, like mm-hmm. a, an artificial intelligence, actually thinks of an idea. Only, only, you know, the statute says patents are granted to persons, to the inventor. Mm-hmm. Um, who's the inventor on an AI-related invention? Can you protect an AI invention uh, that, with a patent? And the answer is not really clear. There is a, uh, I think somebody tested it in Europe, uh, tried to patent an AI invention in Europe, and they listed, I think they listed the, whatever the AI computer program as the inventor, and the European patent office said nope, can't do that. So uh, I don't think anybody has done it in the U.S. yet.
0: That, that's a great question. Uh, my daughter uh, has an app on her iPad, which she's on far too much. Um, but my daughter uh, and she plays music on it, right? And and it's all these clips and things that she kind of pulls, but it's from, you know, iTunes or 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 not iTunes, but it's from whatever app she's on, right? Yeah. And then she compiles these things together to make what I think is a unique song, mm-hmm. but not really because it's all sort of their property, right? Could I uh could I copyright something that she creates on an app like that? Um or could she copyright it? She I don't know that she I would. Could, uh she could try.
1: Um the the area of copyrights with respect to samples of other songs, which is what that's been around for a while. You know, DJs taking samples yeah. of other songs and incorporating mm-hmm. it. Um, DJs have not had a very good track record at um, at winning copyright lawsuits that have been filed against them for taking samples. Um, or really anybody that uses samples, it's just like I, th- I personally think there's probably a, f- a strong fair use argument there because one of the factors um, that you can use to show fair use in the copyright world and get get out of infringement. So you are infringing uh, if you even, if mm-hmm. you can show fair use, but fair use is a defense, um, and if you can show that you're you know you're fair fairly using uh, another copyrighted work, you won't be liable, but um, One of the factors is if you can show your uses, what we call transformative. And I think there are a lot of uses of samples that are transformative. Like they aren't really trading on the original song itself. Mm -hmm. They're just kind of using a very small part and creating something totally different. And I think it's a good argument. It just hasn't been very successful in court. Mm -hmm. So Uh,
0: talking about AI, right? Um, Are are you seeing more of it? Um, How much is it? Is it creeping into your practice?
1: Um, it hasn't crept into my practice yet, um, just because I think I think it's still kind of in its infancy. Um, so I haven't had to deal with it directly with the client, but I'm definitely keeping abreast of developments to when it does, because I'm I'm sure it will. Like I was listening to the to the radio on the way into work today, and um, they were they went over a story about uh, an AI program that took as an input a bunch of uh, Frank Sinatra Christmas songs and generated a completely original no Christmas no song that sounded exactly like frank Sinatra um, and artificial intelligence did that i mean this, this is you heard the song
0: or you heard the story that this was created they they played the song too was it good Yeah. I mean, it was it a little off. Did it get you in the off. spirit or? Well, or? It,
1: was, it was a little off, but it talked about, you know, decorating the Christmas tree and it sounded like Frank Sinatra. And I, you know, I agreed with the, you know, the guys on the radio that there there was something a little off about it. You know, it was kind of like um, you could, you could tell it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a, a, an orchestra or, you know, whatever. A little um,
0: impersonal. Yeah. Maybe. But I mean, it definitely sounded a lot like Frank Sinatra singing. That's something else. I was, on a, I was on a conference call not too long ago where we were talking about AI, and the person told me that, uh, I don't know, some study, some expert somewhere said that the profession that, it, that would be, or subset of profession that would be as or more insulated than anybody else for AI, just so you're aware, are criminal defense lawyers so you may you know if and when the computers take over the world uh we you know you, you cuz and and I and I said well that's because a computer or ai you know can't go and can't go and and convince a jury that my client who is a probably a a drug dealer who is on a chase from the police and uh and crashes into somebody's swimming pool is actually the victim ai can't really uh can't really have that level of uh qua. Yeah. right? That, yeah. that 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 level of of this or that. But AI is, um, I mean, it's it's fascinating because they're saying it can do law a lot of lawyering. Yep, right.
1: That's that's showing up in my industry too. There's a there's a company out there that um, I've only looked at one example, but um, they they contend that their software you basically. T- give them your patent claim, you know, like I said, the English sentence that describes the mm-hmm. invention, and they will give you an entire first draft of the written description, which usually is like five, 10, 15 pages, something like that, um, and draft flowcharts and figures, all using AI. And I've looked at one example of it. Um, I didn't really read it too closely, but I mean, it looked like a pretty fair approximation of what a first draft might look like. Um, Mm-hmm. Of of an event so it's it's coming everywhere,
0: yeah, and you know what the computers have in store for us when they take over right no. not not much <laughs> they don't have much they don't have much in they don't have much for for planned for us yeah or 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 in store for us they yeah. it's Beca- not going to be not going be pretty
1: because with like the the deep fake videos and everything, they may be able to create a video of Jeremy Rosenthal arguing. Or a why a defendant is not guilty. I mean, I, they they I, may be able to do that.
0: And I and I I can only hope that they do it with better hair than <laughs> I've got now. And it wouldn't be hard for them to create a better version. I, I I wouldn't think. But yeah, um, yeah, they don't have. I don't think a whole lot in store for us. Uh, what is uh, you, you also do entertainment law? We've got about five minutes left. Mm-hmm. Uh, three minutes left. Uh, you've. Talk a little bit about that we've kind of uh that's how the lawyer show goes is we never get to everything we want to get to um, talk, talk- a little bit about your entertainment practice
1: yeah it's uh, it's more like copyright related i've my wife is a professional photographer, so I'm sort of plugged into that world and I've represented um photographers and product designers in sort of like a you know a copyright uh context um I, I represented a photographer once who had uh, a company called Forever Twenty One. Basically, I don't know if it was them or one of their designers they they contract with, but basically take her photo off the internet and put it on a, a t shirt and sell it. And they sold you know a whole bunch of them. Um, so that was a copyright case that, where I was on the plaintiff's side. Um, I represented uh, I represented a photographer, a pretty famous photographer named Carol Highsmith um, against a, a big photo licensing company, uh, where they were, they were licensing like 20,000 of her images, um, uh, without her permission. So, um, yeah, it's mostly, you know, kind
0: of in the photography design area where I, I practice that. I had one situation, uh, it's been a long time ago in a many, many, many moons ago, I did civil work, uh, kind of Jack of all trade stuff. When you go somewhere in public and you listen to music, or they're playing music, is that ASCAP? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And that's an BMG, acronym yeah. for, yeah. And so uh, we got a nasty gram letter from, from I think it was ASCAP. Yeah. Yeah. And it said, you owe us X amount of dollars, very specifically. And I researched that and they've, man, I have never seen such homes, aggressive homespun litigation. I mean, they said, we can sue you in the Southern District of New York. I think it was the Southern District of New York, and we win because here's the 84 cases that say we win.
1: Yeah, uh, the protection of music in the copyright world is very aggressive and airtight. Like I said, I mean, it's really tough to use a sample without getting permission. Even No matter how much you change it, no matter how your song is totally different from the original, it's just tough, mm-hmm. it it really is. I mean, there there's just a lot of copyright issues with respect to music.
0: Well, even on, and I was explaining to you as our as our intro was playing, uh, I was even explaining to you, we paid the royalties on whatever music that was because Facebook will recognize it mm-hmm. if we don't, yeah. and they'll shut it off. Yeah, and I, I get questions like, I've
1: got buddies who are in bands, you know, and they wanna maybe do cover music or something like that. They're always like, message me on Facebook, they're like, is this fair use, you know, what we're doing? I'm like, no, no, it's not. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I don't think the band would ever sue you, but
0: can't promise it. You can tell them that, uh, that, that uh, what is it? it, it the um, copying is the sincerest form of flattery. I got that wrong. Sure. Yeah, oh, that's the music. Are you want me done? You're trying to be done with me? <laughs> you don't want us to go? Our ideas are too big and dangerous. Uh, Oh, yeah. No, it is time. My phone's going off here. This is another highly successful episode of The Lawyer Show that you've been watching. My guest today, James Gorley, intellectual property lawyer from the law firm of Carstens & Cahoon. Thank you for being on The Lawyer Show. Thank you for being my guest. And we will see everybody next week with a topic that's probably... No, we won't. That's Thanksgiving. The week after, uh, for a topic that I'm sure is going to be enthralling.